This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. American students are in debt. Some 44 million Americans collectively hold over $1.4 trillion worth of debt. Those numbers have increased since the global financial crisis from 10 years ago. Given that we've got over 43 million people with a federal student loan, certainly it cuts across sort of all races, all incomes. You know, we're talking about one out of roughly every six adult Americans. But sort of if you were to say who is more likely to have student loans, it's going to be people of color, it's going to be low-income people, and it's going to be older students. Today, I speak with Ben Miller, a senior director for post-secondary education at the Center for American Progress. Ben specializes in higher education accountability, affordability, and financial aid, as well as for-profit colleges. His most recent op-ed, The Student Debt Problem is Worse Than We Imagined, appeared in the New York Times in August. What we've really seen after the recession is that states cut basically billions of dollars in funding for public higher education. And the result of that essentially is that a big chunk of those cuts got passed on to students in the form of higher tuition, which they then borrowed to pay for. Ben Miller, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi there, Will. Thanks for having me. So how much debt is the average American student in? So, you know, this number can vary a little bit depending upon whether or not a student gets a bachelor's degree, just an associate degree, if they graduate or not. So I like to think about this in terms of students who graduate. And for them, it's about $22,000. But for someone who, say, gets a bachelor's degree, it's a little bit higher, more like about $30,000. And for someone who maybe gets only an associate or certificate, it can be a little bit lower, uh, more on the order of sort of the high teens, low 20s. And what do we know about this student debt? Like, So are there gender and socioeconomic and racial differences when it comes to the types of students that have this debt? Yeah, so I mean, we we know a couple different things. So one is, you know, we talk about the typical college student. The person we have in our minds is sort of the 18-year-old who goes straight from high school, uh, stays in a dorm on campus, things like that. And that person really is not the typical student loan borrower. Uh, In general, a lot of the people borrowing student loans uh, tend to be older students. So they may have actually worked for a couple of years before they... Uh, went to college, uh, they're much more likely to be people of color. Uh, and as you might expect, they're much more likely to be low income because you know one of the reasons why people have to turn to a student loan is because they don't have the money to just pay for tuition up front. And so you know when we look at the numbers and things like that, we tend to see is there's you know a pretty big difference in terms of the fact that uh, say an African American bo- uh, student is much more likely to borrow compared to, say, a white student or an Asian student or something like that. And so, you know, given that we've got over 43 million people with a federal student loan, certainly it cuts across sort of all races, all incomes. You know, we're talking about one out of roughly every six adult Americans. But sort of if you were to say who is more likely to have student loans, it's going to be people of color, it's going to be low-income people, and it's going to be older students. And are borrowers taking out money to, to go to community colleges, state colleges, private colleges? Like what sort of institutions are borrowers, student borrowers, typically attending? So here, you know, again, we have thousands and thousands of colleges in America. They are 
using student loans at a, a really wide variety. But, you know, by and large, the most common places where we see, see student loans are going to be at your public four-year colleges. So whether that's your University of California, Berkeley's, your uni- University of Virginia's, your University of Arkansas's, et cetera. And then you see it also a fair amount at private for-profit colleges, which are places like the University of Phoenix, uh, DeVry, things like that. Um, Interestingly, even though community colleges represent uh, a very large share of students, they have a much, much smaller share of borrowing, mostly because the prices there are so low and so affordable that a lot of students don't have to borrow to go there. So we have a little bit of a difference between sort of where students are going and where students are borrowing. And has this sort of picture that you've just sort of painted of the typical borrower been consistent over the past, say, 10 years? So, you know, really what we've seen is a a big change following the Great Recession. So, you know, you go back to, say, 2004, and what you see is a little over half the students in college, about 53%, had to borrow and of those who finished something of any type, bachelor's, associate, et cetera, the average amount they owed was like $19,800. You fast forward to say 2012 or 2016, right after the, a couple years after the recession or many years past that, and you're looking at about 62% of people borrowing uh, with a typical debt load more like uh, $24,600 or so. And, and I should say these numbers here are all adjusted for inflation. So in real terms, we're looking at borrowers who, who graduate taking on about $5,000 more in their debt load and being about eight percentage points or so more likely to borrow. And, you know, that, that's a little bit of the troubling thing is basically, you know, at this point, we're, we're several years past the end of the recession. And you would hope that we would have seen a li- little bit more of a return to where things were before the recession. And, and we're not really seeing that. It, it really has sort of jumped up a good bit and largely stayed there. And why did it jump up in the numbers that you, you earlier said? Yeah, so I mean, I think a couple things happened. So one is one of the main things that determines whether or not people borrow and how much they borrow is the price of their college. And one of the things that really affects how much someone pays for college is if they go to a public college, how much the state subsidizes it. So it used to be that states paid the lion's share of the cost of actually educating someone. So prices were relatively low and affordable. And what we've really seen after the recession is that states cut basically billions of dollars in funding for public higher education. And the result of that essentially is that a big chunk of those cuts got passed on to students in the form of higher tuition, which they then borrowed to pay for. The other thing that happened at the same time is we saw really massive increases in the number of students going to uh, what's called private for-profit colleges. Again, your University of Phoenix is of the world. And those colleges, because they don't get any uh, state subsidies by and large, and because they want to make a profit on top of whatever it costs to educate people, tend to just have much, much higher prices than equivalent programs elsewhere. And they tend to enroll people who have even less money to help pay for college. And you sort of combine those two factors and you get just a lot of debt. So states cutting funding to higher education, passing on those expenses to students, and the rise of for-profit universities. Those, that, those are the two big reasons 
the differences, say, between 2004 and 2012 or 2016. That's right. And I, you know, I, now that you say that, I do, I do forget that I should mention that obviously the other thing that happened was we had a lot of families just have a lot less money. And so that's also going to drive it too, is that, you know, if your price goes up and you also don't have as much resources to rely on, that too is going to affect your likelihood of borrowing. You know, the other big question that we really don't know here is how much of some of the borrowing increase we're seeing is a function of families not being able to pay for college by using things like home equity loans in the past. So, you know, it's highly likely that a lot of middle-income families may have been drawing from their home equity to help pay for college. And obviously, uh, when home prices really took a dive during the recession, that became uh, a financial tool they couldn't really tap anymore. But, you know, home prices have recovered a little bit and the borrowing is still really up there. So that part's a little hard to say. Has there also been an increase in enrollment into universities post-global recession? Yes. So we saw a big jump, especially right at the peak of the recession, because, you know, what happened is for a lot of folks who in the past may have said, I'm not going to go to college, I'm going to go get a job. Well, there weren't any jobs to go get. So they went to college instead. And so in particular in community colleges and in private for-profit colleges, we saw a really big increase in enrollment. And so, you know, when you zoom out and think about this in terms of not like the average amount each borrower takes on, but just how many borrowers there are and how much money they're taking on, that's where you really see the enrollment effects. The, the one thing I will say on that is they've since subsided a little bit. Um, you know, as the economy has gotten better, we have seen more people sort of opt to uh, go work rather than go into college. And also just from a demographic standpoint, we had a little bit of a, an echo of the baby boom going on sort of right around the recession where we just had a lot more uh, prime college age people in the population. And now as that sort of echo of the baby boom has faded a little bit, just the sort of number of people in the core college demographic has also slightly shrunk. So. I want to turn to the loan providers. Who's giving these loans? So these days, the the vast majority of loans are coming directly from the federal government. Um, You know, it's probably over around 90% or maybe a little bit higher are what we call federal student loans with the other 10 or so percent uh, called private student loans. Um, The one that makes it a little bit funny or a little bit confusing is the loan comes directly from the government, but... The, the way it actually works is basically colleges get approved to participate in the loan program and then any student they enroll who is eligible can get a loan. So it, it becomes a little bit of a strange thing because it's not like, say, um, home mortgages where there's individual calls being made and you know the government sets certain terms that they're going to approve for loans and things like that. It's much more sort of the school gets in the aid program, and then anyone who comes in the school's door can get the loan. So a typical borrower, like, are they submitting an application to the federal government or through their school? So they would submit it to the federal government. They fill out something called the free application for federal student aid, and then they sign a document that's called a master promissory note that outlines, um, you know, the terms and conditions of the loans, the fact they need to repay it, etc. But then the money itself actually flows from the government to the school. So for example, example, if the um, student is just gonna use the loan directly to pay for their tuition, they're not gonna ever actually touch the money. It's just gonna go straight to the, the school. 
if they have uh, a loan in excess of what their tuition is. So like, let's say their tuition is $4,000 and they take out a $5,000 loan, then the school actually cuts the check for that $1,000 difference. And sends it to the student. And sends it to the student. That's right. Yeah. And, and then when the student repays loans, are they repaying the school? Are they repaying the Department of Education? How does that work? Yeah. So they repay the Department of Education. But again, it's, it's sort of a funny thing where the money is the federal money. But what the Department of Education actually does is it contracts with a series of private companies to do what's called student loan servicing. So basically, uh, if a borrower has a problem with their loans or they have a question or they need advice, when they pick up the phone and call somebody, the person who answers the phone on the other line is essentially a contractor for the federal government, not an actual federal employee. Okay, so I think I got the sort of mechanics here. Now, what happens if, for instance, I can't repay or make a payment on my student loans? And do I tell the contractor who's servicing the loan for the federal government? Do I tell my school? Do I tell the Department of Education? Like, what would I do? So, I mean, the, let, let's presume that you want to do something about it because realistically what happens with a lot of people is they can't pay, they don't say anything, and then after 270 days, they default on it. But for people who want to pay and just can't, or I should rephrase it as who, you know, can't pay but don't want to default and want to do something, what they would typically do is either pick up the phone and call the servicer, or they might try and go on to studentloans.gov and see what they can do through that website. And you know, basically when you find yourself in that situation, there's a couple things you can do. Uh, one is there are certain tools the Department of Education offers called deferments or forbearances that essentially allow borrowers to stop making payments without uh, the risk that the loan will default. And so, you know, some of these things are things that totally make sense and are reasonable to do. So, you know, if you say graduate from your undergraduate program, you decide you want to go to graduate school, you can get what's called an in-school deferment. So essentially the government's not going to make you pay your loans while you're back in school again. Or, you know, if you're in the military and you go into active duty, they're not going to make you pay while you're doing that. For people who are really struggling, what they can do is get other kinds of deferments or forbearances where some of them could be as simple as you just call the servicer and say, hey, I'm struggling, I need help. And they could just say, okay, just don't pay us for a year. And that's called a, a forbearance. And you know the downside to that is one, you don't make any progress paying down your loan. And two, the interest on your loan keeps growing. So it sort of fixes your problem you know, right away, but doesn't help you at all over the long run. And so, the, you know, the thing we've done, or not we, but the, the federal government has done to try and deal with that long run question is create a series of options called income driven repayment. And what those do is basically say, okay, if your loan payment is too much compared to your income, we'll cap what you owe at a set share of your income. So basically what the, the typical line is, you'll never pay more than what's known as 10% of your discretionary income. So basically the amount of money you make with an allowance to recognize that, you know, you have to pay for food, you have to pay for housing, et cetera. And so what that means is for some borrowers who are really struggling, they may not actually have to make a payment because it may be that they either don't have any discretionary income or 10% of their discretionary income is some tiny, tiny, tiny dollar amount. And so for them, uh, they don't default, 
and they actually start to make progress toward getting loan forgiveness because the the sort of final thing we offer here is if you uh, use one of these income-driven payment plans for 20 years or 10 years if you're in public service, uh, the government forgives whatever you have left at the end of that period. So, you know, we have, we have a little bit of a strange circumstance where a struggling borrower, there's sort of the easy fix for them, which is to stick them on one of these forbearances. And then the thing that's probably good for them over the long run, which is to tie their payments to their income and help them, you know, work their way toward eventual forgiveness. And, you know, I think what you see sometimes is, depending upon who picks up the phone or what they want to do, sometimes the borrower gets put on the thing that's good for them in the long run. And sometimes they get that quick fix that probably doesn't really help them. Why wouldn't all students do the income-driven repayment scheme? So, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is, you know, some people really just want to get rid of these loans as fast as possible. And, you know, so they want to pay uh, faster. They don't want to pay on, say, like a 20-year time horizon. You know, what I would often tell people is think about this as just go on that plan and you can always pay more. There's no penalty for prepayment. Uh, the, the other issue is it's just a little bit clunky to use. Like you have to submit your tax records and you have to do it each and every year, which can be a real pain. Uh, you know, one of the things we hear from servicers and students alike is paperwork gets lost. The rules are confusing. It's hard to do it just all digitally. So in some cases, you may be even faxing stuff. And, you know, I, I will say as someone who considers himself relatively tech literate, I don't think I've ever correctly sent a fax on the first try. Uh, so I imagine there's a lot of people who are in the same boat there. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other thing is some of these plans, the way they work is you never pay more than 10% of your income. But if you're really well to do, it's possible that 10% of your income is actually more than what you'd pay on one of the more typical plans. And so people may not want to be forced to pay, you know, even more than they might otherwise would. Are there any incentives for the service provider to prefer a particular repayment scheme over others? Not really. So basically the way this whole thing works is the federal government actually doesn't pay very much uh, to the servicers for any given student. So like a student who is current on their loans gets generates about $2.85 a month for a student loan servicer. One who goes really delinquent might generate a dollar 50 cents, something like that, a lot less. But the problem is, again, you know, there's, there's a not insignificant difference between $2.85 and 50 cents, but it's not a huge amount. And so the, the, the servicing game becomes all about volume. You know, you basically want as many accounts as you can possibly have. And so when servicers get judged to sort of figure out who's going to get new accounts, the government does look at things like, what share of the borrowers that you work with are current on their loans, what share are really delinquent or in default, things like that. But, you know, for a lot of servicers, the trick is to be good enough. And for a lot of borrowers who are really struggling, it may not be worth the cost to try and work and get them into one of these income-driven repayment plans versus just sticking them on the voluntary forbearance saying, you know, all right, look, I'm going to get a buck or so less than I otherwise would, but it's going to cost me basically nothing to do it. And as long as I don't do it too often, I'll be okay. So I think that's the real challenge is it's not just that like we don't sort of incentivize using income-driven repayment enough, but the way we pay them so little, it can kind of make it such that they're going to 
very easily say it's just not worth the money it would cost to really help a borrower. So the borrowers are, the, I mean, the, the sort of political economy here, the logic behind these um, repayment or these service providers for student loans is is volume. So in a sense, they also contribute to the rising numbers of the student debtors. Is that correct? You know, I wouldn't quite go that far. I mean, they definitely play a role in kind of how successful borrowers are when they repay their loans. But I think the challenge is they both matter a lot in many ways and not necessarily in other ways. So for instance, you know, I think one of the problems we have is for some borrowers, the issue is they've got a loan and they either didn't finish college or they got a loan from a place that's really not very good. And you, you could have the best student loan servicing in the world and maybe those borrowers are slightly more successful than they would be, but we still have a basic problem of essentially they've got debt that their income's probably not gonna let them be able to repay all that easily. I think where you'd probably see more issues around the servicing is folks who probably can pay, like they have the money and maybe they're get given sort of either bad advice or put in the wrong plans or you know if they pay extra each month it doesn't get applied to their loans properly sort of things like that so you know they, they both do matter a lot but one thing i always caution people is that we shouldn't sort of assume that if we just fix servicing we'll just solve all these problems because the baseline issue is what did people even borrow for and what did they get when they borrowed in the first place yeah, I, that seems like a whole nother conversation we could have. I, what I want to do is actually, you know, instead of talking about the people that are able to repay loans in different using different schemes, I'd like to talk about the students who can't actually make the repayments. I guess they would be delinquent or, or eventually default. Could you tell us what the difference is between those who are delinquent in their student repayments and the students who end up being in default? Sure. So basically the way it works is in order to default on a federal student loan, you have to go 270 days without making your required payment. So basically what that means is let's say you don't pay for a couple months, you start going delinquent. And typically we start to think about sort of a significant delinquency as being about 90 days late. So you sort of skipped three months. Um, we don't really kick in any consequences though until that 270 days where after that point you actually are sort of formally deemed to be in default. You start working with actually a whole new set of companies um, and then usually about day 360 is when you know that they might start doing things like garnishing your wages or taking your tax refunds and things like that. So you know the way I think about it is those folks who are severely delinquent are probably pretty likely to be future defaulters, but they just haven't gotten there yet because, you know, 270 days is roughly nine months. Uh, so it, it takes a little while to get there. Is defaulting on your student loans similar to defaulting on your house mortgage? So, I mean, yes and no. Uh, in, in one sense, it's similar in the sense that it's pretty bad and the consequences to your credit are fairly severe. Um, in some ways it's less bad and some ways it's worse. So, you know, it's less bad in the sense of a student loan is not backed by a physical asset. So 
if you default on your mortgage, they will take your house. If you default on your auto loan, they'll take your car. Well, they can't come and repossess, you know, your diploma. And, you know, for over half of defaulters, they don't even have a diploma because they didn't graduate. So there's nothing that gets like physically taken from you that way. On the other hand, uh, because it's a federal loan, there's very strong powers to collect on that debt. So the government can garnish your wages. It can take a tax refund. Uh, if you're old enough and get Social Security, they can take a portion of your Social Security. Um, they can also sort of go after you in court uh, if they think that you have the means to pay and you're just not. And, you know, unlike, say, most other kinds of debt, like credit card debt and things like that, you can't really get rid of it in bankruptcy. Uh, it's not ex- 100% impossible, but it's like 99.9% impossible. <laughs> so it, it is this funny thing, right? Where on the one hand, the immediate consequences are not as bad because they don't sort of come and take something, but you don't really have a way to ever get rid of the debt once you have it, unless you pay it off or get it forgiven. What happens if you die? I mean, does it get passed on to your next of kin or does it disappear? So that is the, the one place where we will just wipe it out. Um, you know, that that's true of federal loans. It is not always true of private loans. In fact, there's been some cases that are really, really heartbreaking where you've had, say, a parent co-sign a loan with a student. The student passes away and sometimes the lender will actually make the loan essentially come due in its entirety right away. Uh, federal student loans have a protection that does not allow for that. So we don't transfer it to generations. If a parent borrows on behalf of a child and the parent passes away, it gets wiped out. So that it, it does stop at death's doorstep. And how many borrowers are in default? Do we know this number? Yeah. So right now, I think it's between about seven and eight million. I, I forget the exact figure. And part of the way they report it makes it hard to get the, the exact count. But, you know, it's a lot. And it grows. So we have about a million borrowers who default every year on a federal student loan. So those are people who could have entered repayment at any, any point in time over, over many, many years. But, you know, we're, we're talking about a not insignificant number of Americans here. And you said that there was uh, slight problems with how it's reported. How, how is this number reported? So the, the basic issue to make a uh, long and fairly wonky story short is the Department of Education has something called the Federal Student Aid Data Center, where they uh, post a bunch of stats about the federal student loan portfolio. And one thing that makes it a little bit hard is we used to have two types of federal student loans in this country. So uh, one was essentially a bank-based system where uh, loans were made directly by the banks and the government essentially gave the banks a guarantee that if the loan defaulted, uh, they wouldn't lose very much money. And then the other system was one where the Department of Education just issued the loan directly itself. In 2010, we moved over and now only loans come from the Department of Education or only federal loans, really. But because we still have this older sort of bank based system for borrowers who borrowed, you know, years and years ago, the reporting across those two systems isn't always consistent. So, you know, we know how many people are in default in one system and how many people are in default in the other, but we don't always know how many are, might be in both at the same time. Is there ever a case where a student who takes a deferral or a forbearance, I guess a forbearance would be the bigger issue here, they take a forbearance and then aren't 
counted as someone who would eventually default? Like, let's say a student takes a forbearance for two years today, and then starting in 2020, ends up defaulting, but then isn't counted in that, you know, the, the statistics on who defaults? Yeah, I mean, basically, we, we think about defaults in two ways. So one is this sort of, what is, in the, what is the whole portfolio doing? How many defaulters do we have? And then the other way we think about it is, are we having too many colleges where we have a higher rate of default than we'd like? And it's that second issue where deferments and forbearances and things like that can start to get problematic. So, you know, essentially the way it works is Congress passed a law in the 90s saying if a college has too many students defaulting on a loan for too many years in a row, they lose access to federal financial aid. The idea being that we don't want to keep giving loans to places where people clearly aren't able to repay them. The challenge is, though, we only track how many borrowers from a given college are defaulting for three years of repayment. So what that means is at the end of the third year in repayment, we stop looking for accountability purposes. So anyone who defaults after that third year just doesn't show up in any of the numbers the Department of Education publishes to talk about how many colleges might have high default rates or things like that. So students who default after the third year wouldn't be accounted for when the federal government is deciding which universities are eligible for federal student loans. That's exactly right. So the whole game becomes about how can you push any possible student loan defaults just past that magic three-year mark? Because if a default happens at three years one day, it doesn't get counted. So, I mean, obviously that's a strange perverse incentive that exists in this sort of economy of student debt. So, like, who are the bad actors? Is it universities? Is it the loan servicers? Like, how does, who's, who's sort of pushing students past that three-year mark? So, you know, what we see is that there's a lot of colleges, particularly private for-profit ones, that seem to be really pushing people into default in later years so they aren't tracked for accountability purposes. You know, this is what we see in the op-ed, that of students who default between years three and five in repayment, the majority went to a private for-profit college. And that's pretty striking because, you know, these schools are only about 10% of students and about 23, 27% of borrowers. So again, roughly quarter of borrowers, more than half of defaulters in years three through five. And, you know, we don't know the exact mechanisms they use, but most likely what's going on is they essentially employ a set of debt management consultants who do things like call the borrowers and say, hey, uh, I'll give you a $25 gift card if you go onto a forbearance. Or, you know, hey, just sign this thing and we'll take care of your loans. Don't worry about it. And, you know, the reason why they do that all is, again, it's all about three years, in, three years into repayment. And so if you just do the basic math, well, okay, it takes 270 days to default on a federal student loan. So that means that three-year window is really more like two years and three months. So all you have to do is get them into forbearance for about two years, and suddenly your problems just go away. And, you know, it's, I should be clear, it's not 100% for-profit colleges. You know, we do see defaults rise uh, in other sectors, but, you know, 
when I got these data that allowed me to see kind of what the five-year picture was, not just the three-year picture, and you plot it by the type of college, you know, you look at, say, community colleges, which enroll a lot of low-income students, and they have a, a line that sort of looks like a roughly straight line. Basically, you know, each year it grows by a couple percentage points because we just see slightly more defaults. When you look at for-profits, there's just this amazing kink in the line right at year three where from year three to four, the default rate jumps by about 45% or about seven percentage points. And so the result of that is, you know, at year three, the default rate for for-profit colleges is about 15%. And by year five, the default rate is about 25%. And so, you know, it's also telling when you compare this uh, between for-profits and community colleges where, you know, community colleges don't have the resources to do this default rate manipulation work. So at three years, when the government's officially looking, the default rate for community colleges is just a little bit above that of for-profits. By year five, the for-profit rate's higher because they've essentially just pushed all of those defaults uh, into those later years. It's interesting. During the, you know, the global financial crisis, there was lots of talk about predatory lending. Lending, giving mortgages to people who like had no jobs and no income. Um, but in this case, it sounds like it's more predatory repayment or something like that. It's not necessarily the lending that is necessarily predatory, but it's the repayment options that could become predatory. Yeah, I mean, I would say it, in these cases, it's not necessarily the way they're repaid so much as what they were borrowed for. So, you know, that's the funny thing, right? So if you took a federal student loan, and used it to go to your local public college, it's probably a pretty decent loan. You know, the interest rate these days is about 4%. You can pay back based upon your income. If you pass away, the loan gets forgiven. If you have a medical issue, you don't have to pay. Things like that that aren't bad. But you take that exact same loan, you offer it for, say, a program's gonna train you to be a medical assistant, which pays, say, $18,000 a year, and they make you borrow $15,000 for it, and suddenly that loan is super unaffordable, and it is sort of predatory because the thing you borrowed for wasn't worth the money. And so the, the way I think about this, the, the real issue is essentially we're allowing some colleges that just do not provide a high enough quality training for students to really succeed after they enter the workforce to be just handing out billions and billions of dollars in federal student loans. What do you think needs to be done? Or or even alternatively, what is the Trump administration doing to address some of these issues? Sure. So, you know, I think that, unfortunately, there's a, there's a big divide between what needs to be done and what is being done. So, you know, on the needs to be done front, I think one thing is we need much stronger measures in place to identify and hold schools accountable if they have loan problems. You know, it's pretty clear that the combination of only looking at default as the sort of only measure of loan results and only looking at the results for three years just makes the whole system way too prone to gaming. So, you know, we only have like 10 colleges a year that trip up uh, these default rate calculations in such a way that they might lose access to aid. They produce about 1,500 borrowers total out of like 5 million in the cohort. So it's basically nobody. Um, so I think that that's a big part. The other thing I would say is, you know, part of where we have student loan issues is that particularly at public colleges, 
we have not done enough to keep up on affordability. And the result there is we really need to find a way to sort of restore the promise in this country that, you know, if you are a low income student, you will get either a low enough price or enough grant aid such that you're not going to have to borrow to go to college. I mean, I, I think we just are forcing a lot of folks who are very low income to borrow when the answer for them really should be grant aid. Now, the challenge is the Trump administration is sort of going in the exact opposite direction. Uh, so one of the things they're in the middle of doing right now is actually undoing a bunch of regulations that were created during the Obama administration to try and stop some of the bad behavior at colleges that have a lot of really acute loan problems. So what they're doing is by getting rid of these regulations, we're actually going to end up spending more money at places with really pretty lousy results. Um, you know, one regulation in particular uh, the Department of Education itself, so the very entity getting rid of it, estimates that undoing this regulation alone is going to cost taxpayers $5 billion over the next 10 years. And basically the reason why it's going to is we had this rule in place that said, we're not going to lend at career training programs where the graduates have to pay too much of their income to cover their student loans. The idea being that if your student loans are too much of a share of your income, you're not going to be able to pay it. You might default, you might go delinquent, or just something bad might happen. Um, so, you know, they want to sort of open up the floodgates of federal aid back to a bunch of places that we just know mathematically are a bad deal for students and for taxpayers. The second issue is, you know, they've been proposing to cut uh, other forms of federal financial aid. So they want to cut some grant programs that are not the, the Pell Grant, which is sort of the core one that, that helps low-income students. They want to get rid of certain options for loan forgiveness and things like that that will just sort of make either it harder to pay for college upfront or will take away some of the safety net we've cobbled together for struggling borrowers once they get to loan repayment. And, you know, I, th I worry a lot about, you know, what happens when you combine those activities and then we get another recession where states might cut their funding again and tuition keeps rising. So do you expect more defaulting in the future? I, I don't see anything that's going to dramatically change this. Um, you know, we, we may see some reductions just because the economy has gotten a little bit better and the number of students in for-profit colleges in particular has fallen a good bit. But the, you know, the real challenge is, I don't know that we're gonna know for sure because um, the data I was able to get for the op-ed are great, but they're one snapshot in time and the Department of Ed doesn't have a regular practice of releasing these longer term default rates at the school level. So you know, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're probably gonna see new student loan default numbers for sort of the most recent cohort we track, they probably will go down a little bit from the year before, be close to like roughly what they were. But I don't have a lot of confidence that whatever we're going to see is going to give us close to the whole story of what's probably going on here. Well, Ben Miller, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk today. Thank you. It was great talking to you too. Ben Miller works for the Center for American Progress. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed 
by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Freshed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. And original music for Freshed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.